Welcome to a new year and welcome to Mike's Notes. Uh, today, I'd like to talk about what it means to be there as a leader. That is, why do leaders have to go to the front lines? Why do leaders have to go on sales calls? Why do leaders have to do all of the day-to-day things that are required in their organization, as well as do all of the leadership things in their organization? Before we jump into the examples from the books I read, I want to start with a clip that got me thinking about this idea. This is from the Jocko Willink podcast number 54, and here we have Jocko reading from the book from that episode, and he's talking about why uh, commanders have to be one with the boys, with the soldiers, so that they can better understand. So here's Jocko from that episode. What the orders mean. By the same token, it is good practice for the junior leader to displace a file, that means just one of the guys, to displace a file in a training exercise and become commanded for a time to sharpen his own perspective. It's good for the junior guys to step up into leadership positions and lead. It's good for the leaders to go and be one of the boys in the platoon. And I got really lucky because I was a prior, what's called a prior enlisted guy, a Mustang officer. So I spent my first eight years in the SEAL teams as a, as a guy in the, I was one of the files. Mm. So I knew what it was like when a leader didn't tell you what was going on. I knew what it was like when you had a good leader. So Willink goes on and he uh, talks about some other experiences from his life that match up with the book that he was reading. And I really liked his podcasts and his examples because he takes these things from the book that he reads and he applies them to his own life and then he applies them to other places he's seen this example and we sort of get this composite picture about okay we've seen this in A, B, and C and so we can maybe trust or we can apply it or we know what to do when we have that situation. Another example comes from Dr. Paul Farmer. Paul Farmer is the subject of the book Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder. This book was fantastic. I finished it at the end of 2016, and it's probably one of my favorite books of the year because it's written in such a great way. It's got a great subject. It's wonderfully paced. It teaches you things. There's big ideas. There's small ideas. This book really had everything that I was looking for, and I really enjoyed it. One of those big ideas from the book is about leaders being there, about being on the ground and realizing that things maybe are different or true, or the theory that they're taught, or the way they understand something isn't the full picture. This is what Dr. Paul Farmer says about working as a physician in Haiti. Quote, I would read stuff from the scholarly texts and know they were wrong. Living in Haiti, I realized that a minor error in one setting of power and privilege could have enormous impact on the poor in another, end quote. So we have Paul Farmer, this Harvard-trained physician, someone who is incredibly smart and incredibly skilled, and he works basically pro bono in Haiti. And he does this um, because he feels just this need, this He feels compelled to go there and to serve those people, in addition to doing other things. So as Farmer works in Haiti, he gets experience working in Haiti, and he starts to see what the effects of poverty are, what the effects of power in women's health are, what the effects of uh, rural situations are, and he sees how all of these things interact. And as Farmer evolves in his career and he starts to treat more people and he starts to raise money for a foundation. He starts to give talks at different places around the world. One of those was from a talk he gave in Cuba. This is from Mountains Beyond Mountains uh, by Tracy Kidder and this is a a section from the book that that, uh, articulates 
and points out and focuses us on the idea of that leaders have to be there. They have to be on the ground. People who want to make policy about serving the poor should be a doctor who serves the poor, much like Paul Farmer. So this is page 198. Farmer asked the audience to remember the days when expert opinion had retailed all sorts of nonsense about who caught HIV and why, the days when to be Haitian was to be part of a risk group. He and his staff had designed a study in Kanji, he said, to try to get at the local facts. 200 women were involved, half infected with HIV, half not. Almost none in either group had been exposed to risks often mentioned in expert commentary intramuscular injections, blood transfusions, intravenous drug use. Around Kanji, Farmer noted, the peasants' vocabulary didn't even contain a word for illicit drugs, which virtually no one could afford anyway. And none of the women had been especially promiscuous. On average, they'd had sexual relations with two different men consecutively, not concurrently, practicing serial monogamy. Between the groups of women, only two differences stood out. Unlike the uninfected, many of the ones with AIDS had worked as servants in Port-au-Prince. Obviously, domestic service had given them HIV, but it did describe their economic desperation. Working for Haiti's elite was rarely pleasant or remunerative. Uniformly, the infected women named that kind of desperation, deep poverty, and illiteracy as their reasons for having taken what appeared to be the real risk for AIDS, which was cohabitating with truck drivers or soldiers. Why those two groups of men? Farmer asked from the podium. Were they known to be sexier than other Haitian men? Of course not! What they had were steady jobs in an economy, where official unemployment rate of 70% probably understated the case. Truck drivers were mobile and could keep women in many ports, and soldiers, back in those days of military rule, had wielded a special coercive power over every peasant. Up at the podium, Farmer went on with the story. After the study was done, he returned to the United States and logged on to Medline. He entered AIDS, and the names of thousands of studies came up on his computer screen. Then he entered AIDS and women, and only a handful of studies appeared. And when I crossed AIDS, women, and poverty, the message said, there are no studies meeting those specifications. So here we have Farmer, who's in some of the poorest parts of one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, maybe even the world. And he goes back to his computer in Boston, and he looks up these conditions that he saw on the ground, and he realizes this idea is not being addressed. He understands that there is a force, there's a current, there's a motivator, there's a cause that all of these effects come from. And people who don't go there, who aren't on the ground, who don't be there as leaders, don't see those things. They read about things and they develop opinions and they create models and those models turn out to be wrong because they don't go there and they don't see what's on the ground. Paul Farmer is an extreme example in almost every single sense of what he does. He's extreme in his intelligence, in his commitment, in his uh, intellect, in his pursuits, in his writings. It's hard to model yourself after Paul Farmer because you're not going to come close. The things that he does and the things that he did and the things that he will do are simply amazing. But there's other examples that prove this point, that, that emphasize the value of leaders being there. And this is my favorite example, and that is of Samuel Zamuri. Zamuri lived the real-life version of what most people think when they think entrepreneur. Born in Russia, Zamuri immigrated to America in 1892. In the book The Fish That Ate the Whale, Rich Cohen writes that Zamuri grew up fast. 
The immigrants of that era could not afford to be children, Cohen writes. As a teen, Zamuri went to Mobile, Alabama with $150 that he used to buy two packages of ripe bananas. Bananas that a company thought were worthless. Maybe they had one or two brown spots, but would soon perish quickly. Zamuri then rented a section of a boxcar and rode the train north, selling his bananas out the side door of the car. And he spent all of his money on bananas that he couldn't afford his own ticket, so he ended up just sleeping in the train car with his produce. Zamuri worked his way up to buy enough money to get a plantation and a boat and eventually create his own banana republic. And this is where his trait of leadership resides. This is what Cohen writes on uh, page 71. Zamuri worked in the fields beside his engineers, planters, and machete men. He was deep in the muck, sweat covered, swinging a blade. He helped map the plantations, plant the rhizomes, clear the weeds, lay the track. He was a proficient snake killer. Taller than most of his workers, as strong and thin as a railroad spike, he shouted orders in dog Spanish. He believed in the transcendent power of physical labor, that a man can free his soul only by exhausting his body. A life in an office, deskbound, was for the feeble and weak, who cut themselves off from the actual. He ate outside, sharks, fins, soup, plantains, crab gumbo, sour wine. His years in the jungle gave him experience rare in the trade. Unlike most of his competitors, he understood every part of the business, from the executive suite where the stock was manipulated to the ripening room where the green fruit turned yellow. He was contemptuous of banana men who spent their lives in the north, far from the plantations. Those schmucks, what do they know? They're there. We're here. That's a quote that I come back to so often in the things that I read, in the margin notes that I take, in the things that I write. They're there. We're here. It's it's an ethos, it's a spirit, it's an idea, but what it manifests, what it brings to a leader is this deep understanding of the situation. If a leader does that, if they are a proficient snake killer, if they plant the crops, if they go there and treat the sick, they can speak with more authority and they can see things that are true. And this is what Willink was talking about with leaders who need to get in the line. They need to see the things that their soldiers see. They need to understand the situation deeply. My final example is another soldier. His name is E.B. Sledge, and he's the author of With the Old Breed, a book about two Pacific theater battles in World War II. Sledge is not ready for the war. He feels a patriotic urge to fight, but he doesn't know enough. He doesn't know much of anything. But he's ready, and he's committed to foregoing his college experience so that he could sign up and be shipped off with the U.S. Marine Corps. So Sledge goes through the process of boot camp and does the physical training, but he knows there's a difference between the practice and the reality. As hard as boot camp is, there's something in his mind, there's something in his understanding that war is going to be different. War is going to be harder, and he doesn't exactly know how or why or where, but he knows there's something else out there. Then one day, two combat veterans come through camp, and here's what Sledge writes in his book. One afternoon, two veterans of the Bourgainville campaign dropped into my barracks to chat with some of us. They had been members of the Marine Raider Battalion that had fought so well, along with the 3rd Division Marines. They were the first veterans we had met, other than our instructors. We swamped them with questions. Were you scared? asked one of my buddies. Scared? Are you kidding? I was so goddamn scared the first time I heard slugs coming at me, I could hardly hold on to my rifle, came the reply. The other veteran said, listen, mate, everybody gets scared, and anybody says he don't is a damn liar. 
So here we have Sledge, somebody who doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, and he's talking to people who have been there, so he's getting a deeper understanding, he's getting information. Beyond these war stories, there were other things that Sledge writes about that was really important. This is about some training that he went through in New Caledonia, uh, very close to um, his first battle. One important thing you must learn fast to survive is exactly what enemy fire sounds like coming at you and what kind of weapon it is. Now, when I blow this whistle, get down and stay down until you hear the whistle again. If you get up before the signal, you'll get your head blowed off and the folks back home will get your insurance. Red, red, red is the instructor, that's who said that. Red blew the whistle and we got down. He announced each type of Japanese weapon and fired several rounds from it over our hole into the bank. Then he and his assistants fired them all together for about 15 seconds. It seemed a lot longer. The bullets popped and snapped as they went over. Several machine gun tracers didn't embed in the bank, but bounced off and rolled white hot, sizzling and sputtering into the hole. We cringed and shifted about, but no one got burned. This was one of the most valuable training exercises we underwent. There were instances later on Peleliu in Okinawa, which it prepared me to come through unscathed. So here we have Sledge, he's learning these things from people who have been on the ground and he's learning what it's like on the ground. He's learning that when you get there, it's going to be scary. You're going to be scared and anyone who says they don't is a liar. When he gets on the ground, he's learning what ammunition is going to sound like. This is a, a little later after this uh, firing exercise where they learn to notice what things sound like. This is what Sledge writes. A little later, a salty sergeant who had been written about in a national magazine instructed us in how to mount a bayonet charge. He coached us carefully to hold the M1 on its side with the left side of the blade toward the deck instead of the cutting edge as we had been taught in the States. This way, as we parried a Japanese blade, he couldn't lock ours. So here we have Sledge who, uh, who doesn't know what's going to happen, but he's getting this experience from people who had been there. We have this salty sergeant who's teaching them to parry blows in a different way than they had been taught because he had been there. He had understood what it was like on the ground. He could coach them in a better way of doing things. So why does this work? Why do the best leaders, why do the people who succeed, why do the people who survive, why do they value the effort and the ideas and the learning and the education from the people who are there, who are on the front line. I came up with a few ideas. First, maybe there's details you need to know. This isn't necessarily secret details, but things you otherwise wouldn't notice. In a 1994 talk, investor Peter Lynch told a group of journalists that they need an edge to succeed in investing. That edge wasn't hard to come by, though. It was in your job or your town or the things that you bought. Lynch gives the example of successful drug companies and wonders why the nurses who were giving those drugs and seeing the positive effects were investing in oil companies rather than pharmaceuticals. As a leader, you'll need to see these things if you go to the women, work on the plantation, or be on the front line. Andy Grove wrote that it was comfortable in his office, but it was his staff that felt the winds of the real world. So there's details out there that you can see when you start to ask people who are doing the things rather than the people who are planning from the C-suite. The second big idea that I got from this is that being there gives you trust and authority as you become a leader. Paul Farmer was both a country doctor and an international speaker on health, in part because the former let him be the latter. When Farmer gave talks to the World Health Organization, he didn't act as a researcher or an academic, but as a practitioner. 
When he was learning about Haiti, he wasn't satisfied with observing or being an anthropologist, but with helping. E.B. Sledge wrote a book about the Pacific battles because he was there. If you go through the experiences, if you live through them, if you smell them and inhale them and experience them, it gives you a certain trust and a certain authority to speak to others and to lead them. The third big takeaway, the third thing I thought that leaders could use from this is that it pinches the problem. More and more situations have positive outcomes if we pinch them, that is if we approach them from two directions. If you want to be wealthy, for example, you could both save more and earn more. That's going to pinch the problem of you not being wealthy. If you want to be healthy, you can eat better and sit less. Those are two opposite ways to uh, pinch the problem. If leaders can be there and they can understand the big picture, they can have the same pinching effect. They can understand the view from 20,000 feet, but also get the point of view of operators who are on the ground. Good leaders should really be there. They should understand what the practitioners are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis so that they can apply the macro perspectives to the micro actions. Hopefully this episode has been helpful, whether you're a leader of your family or a leader of your team or a leader of your organization. Being there helps. Feeling the winds of the real world helps. Seeing how people are actually treated for tuberculosis or HIV in Haiti helps. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.